I'm Jared, and I get to continue our fun summer series on uh, You'll Be Glad You Did. And my job today is to help you be glad you did. Come today. I, uh, we get to talk about a really important subject, self-control. The ushers are passing the baskets. Please don't be self-controlled while you respond. I'll take care of the self-control lapses a few minutes here, but well, thank you for your generous giving. Uh, I'm interested in this important topic because self-control is highly predictive about how things are going to work out in an individual's life. Uh, self-control is sometimes called self-regulation by psychiatrists. It's, it's called uh, impulse control in emotional intelligence. It's called self-discipline by parents. And it makes a lot of difference in life. For example, if you know of anybody that wants to get good grades in college, in a study of 32 personality characteristics, only one was correlated with good grades. Guess what it was? Self-control. By the way, it was a positive correlation. The more self-control, the better the grades, but you already knew that, yeah. I had an opportunity the last two weeks to experience some self-control. <laughs> Got a letter from the IRS. It wasn't long, but it was pointed. Had a deadline response date on it, and I checked in with our accountant, who was on an extended vacation, followed with professional education, which I discovered later was nothing more than a lot of golf with other CPAs. But I was on my own on this one, and so I did what you would have done. I called the IRS. Knowing that I was going to talk about self-control within a couple of weeks, it's a lot of pressure on a preacher. You kind of have to behave. And so I prepared myself, and I was on hold for 45 minutes, and I had other things to do, and a person came on, and I said, I've gotten this letter, and I want to make sure I'm make, making the right response. And they said, yes, you need to complete this form, and, and you can find that online. And I said, thank you very much. I went online, and I found the form. I downloaded and printed the form. I read the fine print on the form. You cannot download and print and send this form. You have to get a hard copy from the IRS. <laughs> so I called the IRS. 45 minutes on hold. Talked to a person, and she understood that I had misstated the year. She thought I said 2006. I said 2016. And so she launched into this whole explanation of 2006. When I corrected it, she let me know that I was wrong. I had misspoken and had caused her a lot of grief. Self-regulation. I said, I'm so sorry that I misspoke. The correct year was 2016. She said, we'll send you copies. How many would you like? I'm wanting to be humble and not put her out. And I said, just one, please. She said, well, they come in minimum packs of two. I said, two will be even better. Got the information from the IRS, downloaded and printed the 25 pages of instructions on how to complete this one-half-page form. It appeared to me that I only needed to complete three boxes. I called the IRS for help. 45-minute wait. The helpful person said, oh, I'd be glad to help, but we don't give help on this number. You need to call the help number. 
I wrote down the help number and I called the help number, call number four, 45 minute wait. I get the helpful person. I describe my situation and she says, you know, we have instructions to help you. I said, I have the instructions right here in front of me. I've read all 25 pages. I said, I have a couple of questions. I want to make sure that I complete the right boxes and only the right boxes. And she said, well, what we can do is if you tell me what box you have a question about, I can read that section of the instructions to you. <laughs> I said, this conversation may be even shorter than I thought. I said, do I understand that you'll, re you'll read the instructions word by word to me and that's all you can provide. She said, yes. She said, we don't offer recommendations for specific applications. I said, thank you for letting me know in advance of what you can do to help. And uh, we ended the call. Well, you can pray for the salvation of four generations in France, and you can pray that I filled out the form right, because it, it is now to the IRS. Self-regulations, self here we go. Here at Evergreen, we always start with the Bible. We always discover our huge need for the Holy Spirit's help. We always end with Jesus. Let's jump into the Bible. Here we go. The Proverbs has a lot to say about self-control. Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms a dispute. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Wise people think before they act. <laughs> Fools don't. Don't jump to conclusions. There may be a perfectly good explanation for what you just saw. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Here's the executive summary. Nine characteristics of self-control. It's, it's powerful. It restrains temper, overlooks irritation, creates peace, de-escalates hostility, is thoughtful, avoids snap judgments, protects, and gives hope. Does that sound like another summary of nine characteristics someplace in the Bible? Yeah, how about Galatians 5, where it says that the fruit of the Spirit is, here it is, there's love and joy and temperance, and, and there's forbearance, there's kindness, there's goodness, there's faithfulness, and there's gentleness and self-control. It's like if the Holy Spirit really is working in someone's life, the way you'll know that is those eight things will be popping out of their life. And by the way, the capstone of all of them is self-control, self-control. Now, we've discovered in life <laughs> that we never have enough willpower to not also need the Holy Spirit's help with self-control. 
In fact, uh, if you're interested in the science of willpower, I've listed there on the second side of your outline, uh, one of the references is a book called Willpower. And it's just uh, intriguing. Uh, Some of us have enough willpower to get through the first three and a half seconds of the day. For some of us, it's three minutes. For some, it's three hours. For some, it's till six at night. But willpower is never enough to get you effectively through the day. Willpower is a direction that you'd like to go. Self-control is the ability to actually get from here to there. And it is a gift of the Spirit's work in our lives because the Spirit must supplement and complete our best but always limited and inadequate efforts at willpower. I love this quote from Charles Chu. He says, willpower is not a good tool for lifestyle change. It always fails you when you need it most. Instead of relying on strength of mind, build a fortress of habits. These are what will keep you resilient in tough times. Why is it that your best efforts to be different and better often fail? It's because those best efforts are the intentional, heartfelt decision to apply willpower to change in the future. Why does domestic abuse need intervention beyond the guy often, not always, saying, I am so sorry, I'll never do that again? Because intentionality and willpower is usually not enough to actually create lifestyle change. We're going to discover today the wisdom of the Bible. And it's kind of always fun, you know, social science research always ends up confirming what the Bible has to say about how God made us. It tells us that people who are better at self-regulation have better quality of life. High self-control helps people get along better with others and helps the people around them have a better life too. Yeah, It helps us avoid things that hurt us in the long run. Self-regulators, good self-regulators, are typically happier, healthier, and live longer than bad self-regulators. Now, you probably know, I'll just remind you today, that self-control expresses itself in three primary ways, and it's actually past, present, and future. Here's it goes. The first way is it's expressed in inhibition. Resisting impulses that are consistent with important goals or behaving in ways that create problems uh, uh, for ourselves and other people. So dads say to kids, don't do that. The Bible word is rebuke. Cut it out. Initiation is the second way that self-control is expressed. This is taking action that moves us toward a goal. Moms say, do this. The Bible words are correction and instruction. Anne gave a fantastic talk last week about correction. If you didn't hear it, I encourage you to go on the app and and, uh, listen to the podcast. And then the third way self-control expresses itself is through continuation. You see, there are some people that are really good at inhibiting or initiating once, but they're really bad about the follow-through. To be really good at self-regulation, you have to be able to keep at it. So the coach says, keep it up. So self-control says, don't, do, keep it up. Does that sound like another famous Bible passage? Sure. Sure. How about 2 Timothy 
3.16. It says, so all scripture is God-breathed and it's useful. What's it good for anyway? These four things. It's good for rebuking and training and rebuking and correction and training in righteousness. It's good to rebuke you. Don't do that. It's good to correct and instruct you. Do this. And it's good to give you sustaining power, training, present, future tense, so that you can continue to do the right thing in righteousness. Huh. Well, God has designed our brains in some remarkable and phenomenal ways. And we discovered in some fun scientific studies from the early 60s, which is when the research actually started about self-regulation and self-control. And some of you are familiar with the studies that were done on delayed gratification with kids. They're just really fun. Delayed gratification is a good thing. It's learning to work toward and wait for important things to happen in our life. It's the only way that goals end up being accomplished. I'm so proud of my sister. Two days ago, uh, Joyce posted this on Facebook. So uh, yeah, she went public with it. So I'm just going to pull it off and use it as her little brother. So here we go. <laughs> so on the left is Joyce on her 60th birthday, 14 years ago. In about three weeks, she's going to turn 74. The picture on the right is a picture of this week. On her 60th birthday, she had pictures taken and she looked back and she said, I want to go into the future of my life healthier. And part of her health decision was to weigh less. And so she went on a weight reduction journey, which she completed now after 14 years. That's self-control. That's moving the right direction over a very long period of time. Willpower will not get you there. It'll last for the... Just before breakfast is how long willpower will work each day. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, a math uh, smart guy, but I, I like to reduce stuff to math, so it was kind of fun. So I figured out, what does 116 pounds over 14 years look like? It looks like 155 calories a day. It looks like a tall, skinny vanilla latte a day less. Self-control over the long haul. So back to this kid's study. Uh, in the early research of the so-called marshmallow test, young children were shown a treat, and they could eat it right away, or they could have two if they waited for a while. And they learned from this and other studies that have followed three very uh, striking things about kids. Number one, some children are better at self-control than others. Is that a revelation for any of you? Yeah, yeah. Now, some of you have two or more of these kinds of different children in your own home, or you have had it. And, you know, we tend to go to character and spirituality when people bother us. You know, you're not spiritual or you have bad character. Well, you know, maybe there's another way of view of it. You know, some kids have better self-control than others. Uh, they may have spiritual and character problems. I'm not taking that away, but we're wired differently. Number two, how well children were able to control themselves when they were young predicted important psychological, educational, and social outcomes both at that time and later in life when they were adolescents and they were adults. Hmm. And 20 years after doing the marshmallow test, adults who delayed gratification better as children were also 
had higher self-esteem, coped better with stress, were less likely to use illegal drugs, and had lower rates of obesity. Makes a difference. So in the heart of our talk today, I want to quickly ask and address four different questions. And they're not on the screen, but they are in your handout. Let's jump in. The first one was, what does God think about your exercise of impulse control? Let's take a look at a couple of our favorite verses here at Evergreen. It comes out of Romans chapter 12. Verse 1 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your true and proper worship. Stop for a minute at the end of verse 1. Two weeks ago, I gave a talk about, about our bodies. God wants your body. He really does. It's where he starts and how we present and treat and steward and care for our bodies physically is something that's very important to God. If you missed that one, you might want to listen to that podcast too. And now it says God wants your mind. He moves from body to mind. Notice verse 2. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then, this is an amazing promise, this is after mind renewal, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and pleasing and perfect will. How many of you would like to live in the middle of God's good and pleasing and perfect will? Sure, that's all of our goal. Part of the pathway toward that is letting the spirit renew your mind. God wants your body, he cares about it, and he wants your mind. Now, your mind is the activity of your brain. Your brain is not very attractive. We should thank God that he gave us a skull and a scalp. And at least initially for most of us, he even covered that with hair. It changes over time for many of us. But the, the brain is a rather unattractive lump. It's mostly water. It has some fat. It has about 100 billion cells. We call brain cells neurons. Those are connected with synapses. They have some little electrical charges that hop back and forth. And those secrete neurotransmitters that give us different kinds of experiences and moods and thoughts. And then there's uh, the secretion of hormones that our brain tells our body that it should release through us. And then there's these little channels of connections of neurons, neural pathways, we call them habits, that help us do things without having to think about it. Research at Duke University suggests that about 40% of your actions today will be decisions that you make and act on subconsciously. So your best willpower, which by definition has to be conscious, could only possibly address 60% of the actions that you take in a day, another limitation of willpower. So what God says here is, he says, he's not talking about our brain directly, he's talking about our mind, it's the activity of our mind. And what he says is that we all ended up with a preconditioned mind, and that mind is pre-renewed. You have a pre-renewed mind. It's been badly conditioned. Conditioned is these habit patterns that are wired, hardwired through, that cause us to respond to things unconsciously and act out of those unconscious responses. You have a pre-renewed mind. And he says, I want you to give me your mind, and I want you to allow it to be transformed. Because the pre-renewed mind is wired around cultural norms and values. And if you come to me, God is saying, if you come to me in Christ and you don't bring your mind for it to be renewed, you will continue to conform to the patterns of this world. Your mind carries those cultural patterns and values. 
And so he wants our minds to, to be renewed. So God addresses our bodies and then he addresses our minds and brings us to the second question. So, so how does self-regulation now work in the brain with this renewal thing? Well, many of you have seen pictures of the brain. This is really, really simple. That's for my benefit, not for yours. Here it is. So we have down here the spinal cord, and this is where stimuli from the nervous system comes to us. And we gather that primarily from our five senses. Many of you know that last month I flew just for a couple of days, quick trip to Nashville to our niece, uh, Whitney's house, uh, she's in Bangladesh. Her house was arsoned, and uh, it was burned. And uh, after the uh, first responders put it out, it was, it was so burned that they boarded it all up. And uh, I flew in to meet the five insurance adjusters as they were going in for the first time. And so uh, they kindly opened up this house, which in Nashville, in the summer, in humidity, filled with water to start with, had been closed. So, Patrick, I'm looking at you. You know what I walked into. <laughs> Not a good deal, yeah. And let me tell you, when I walked into the daylight basement where, where the, the, the majority of the flame part of the fire was, I was aware of that. The smell was horrific. I tasted the particles in my mouth. I could see what the flames had done in gutting out the house. And had I been there at the fire, the other two senses would have also kicked in. I would have heard the noise and I would have felt the heat and potentially wind coming off of it. Now, the limbic system is where the spinal cord brings this information. And your limbic system is a gift from God that is very, very fast, but it's pretty dumb. Fast and dumb. The good news is it's fast. And before you're consciously aware of, oh, there's a fire here, the senses let your limbic system know there's something here that you should be aware of. And the limbic system is designed to react before you even are consciously aware. So you're taking a hike and there is something in front of you and it looks like a snake and your limbic system goes, oh, that's a snake. And what happens for you? All kinds of wild stuff happens for you in your body. And all of a sudden there's these hormones that are coursing through you and you are prepared to fight, flee, or freeze. And then you look at it and you go, that's a stick. And you go, oh, I'm glad the message got to my frontal cortex because it would have been really embarrassing to have run away from a stick because I am with friends that I'm trying to impress. But initially, the limbic system does not know if it is a real or false threat. And your limbic system never knows whether it is a physical threat or a social threat. So your limbic system does not know if it is a rattlesnake that you're about to step on or if your spouse, partner, or friend just said something that ticks you off. You are ready to fight or flee or to freeze in that moment. God says, I want your brains, I want your minds to be renewed. And so he wants us to come to this place of thinking with him about thinking rationally. It's how God designed your brain. So it's obvious to us then that to be self-controlled people, that at some point it includes the getting past this visceral reaction to something that is not conscious, to actually self-control, self-regulation, self-discipline now is to move that to a place 
where I can be thoughtful and reasonable about this thing. Yeah. Well, as we move on, our third of the fourth questions is, so how does this work in God's design of your brain? Well, let's just take one little angle at it that's kind of fun. This is probably fresh for many of you. It may be a reminder for others of you. But we all have a tendency to either approach or avoid in life. We have a behavioral activation system, a BAS, let's call it a BAS, that draws us to approach. Oh, that looks fun. And we have a behavioral inhibition system, let's call it abyss, that pushes us to avoid. That could get you in trouble. Have you ever had that battle in your life? Looks like fun, could get me in trouble. Uh-huh, yeah. So the bass is the neuropsychological basis for behaviors and emotions that involve approach. The bass is very sensitive to rewards. Whew. The bass kicks in and it orients you toward, why don't you do this? Because this is the reward that you could have. And it motivates us to move toward that rewarding behavior. For me, it's a Cinnabon store. <laughs> You're in the mall minding your own business. I haven't thought about cinnamon rolls for at least 48 hours. They pump that dastardly smell out there. All of a sudden, my mouth is squirting, and I'm thinking to myself, self, you need to approach the door to the Cinnabon store. Yeah, the promise of reward. Now, on the other side of me, I have this thing that's called abyss. And the abyss is very in tune to danger. It, it's, its emotions are anxiety and dread and fear. And, and, and it tells me all of the good reasons that I shouldn't do that. There's some punishments involved if I go to the Cinnabon store. I might gain weight. It's going to get unhealthy. I might die sooner. None of those are preferred futures for me. And so we have this war that goes on inside of us between the bass and the bis. Now, here's the deal. If you were perfectly balanced, you wouldn't need much self-control. You just go down the narrow path. None of us are balanced. Some of you are trying to raise bass kids, they climbed through the birth canal, and now they climb on everything. They climbed on the furniture, and now you can't let them out because they climb on cars and climb trees, and whatever they climb on, they jump from. Very active bass. And then they have a sibling that has a hyperactive bis, and you cannot beg, conjole, or punish that kid to try anything new because the avoidance Behavior is so strong. Some of you are more bass than bis. Brett, I just saw a picture of you skydiving yesterday. That's bass out of control, my friend. I want you to know. <laughs> and we are not balanced about this thing. We are not. And we're not rational about it. Um, I have a pretty decent bass. I have done and do life-threatening things. I'm a private pilot. I uh, have rock climbed. I ride a motorcycle. I'll probably be on one this afternoon to some of your chagrin active bass. But I have never gone on the Matterhorn at Disneyland <laughs> because my bis says, don't put your life in someone else's hands on that thing. Now, you would say to me, Jared, you're a statistics guy. Don't you know that the statistics of getting hurt on a motorcycle are like astronomically greater than getting hurt on the Matterhorn? Yes, I know the stats. I don't care. I'm not rational about it. 
The Apostle Paul writes about this study. Theologians, you're going to, this afternoon, you're going to want to read Romans chapter 7. He tells you exactly what all of us experience. I want to do this so bad, I end up doing that instead. I don't want to do that thing, and I end up doing this thing. What is going to get me out of this mess? And then he spills into chapter 8 with the answer, and he says, if you don't have the Holy Spirit active in your life, you're going to be a royal mess. Let me put it in these mental kinds of psychological terms. You don't have the Holy Spirit bringing self-control to your life. Your busy, your bass is going to consistently win. And it's going to take you into places of excess. In terms of danger and bad, spontaneous decisions, or in terms of not following God into some new and exciting and risky challenges that he has for you. We need the Spirit's help. So, he has some um, help that he wants to give us and. And I don't know, uh, Ann and I saw, uh, uh, watched a documentary on Netflix a couple of weeks ago. We've wanted to see it for a long time. It's called The Wire. By the way, I never recommend movies here. You know that, don't you? This is not a recommendation. I never recommend movies. I have no idea what your sensitivities are. So this is not a recommendation. We watched it and kind of enjoyed it. Some of you are old like me. And you remember that on August the 7th of 1974, this uh, wonderful guy from France, yeah, uh, who has a very active bass and climbed everything he ever saw in his life, snuck up the twin towers and had some other friends sneak up the other twin tower. And they strung by shooting an arrow with fish line behind it across one twin tower to the other one in the middle of the night. And they were able then to pull a string over and then they pulled a rope over and then they finally pulled the cable over. And when people started going to work in New York City, they found this guy walking around on a wire between the twin towers. He did that for two and a half hours. Much of the chagrin of law enforcement that were on both towers trying to get him down. And he teased them. It was a horrible thing. By the way, I don't recommend teasing first responders. Great respect. There's lots of reasons to do that. He teased them. He'd walk over, and then he would back up, and he'd go lay down on the wire for 15 minutes, so two and a half hours. By the way, if you have children that have a hyperactive bass, just thank God that they're not doing this. Here we go. That's all that was for. Here we go. Number four. Promise there was four questions. We're at number four. So what does the Bible say about how to process these competing tensions and emotions? And Especially, let's focus our attention on anxiety. Another way to, to, to ask would, what, what does the Bible say I should do when my limbic system just goes nuts with anxiety and fear and dread? Which, by the way, is a tremendous gift of God. If there is a rattlesnake in the path and you're about to step on it, I would hope you would feel anxiety Thank God for this early warning system and this ability for us to be prepared physically to respond appropriately to threatening situations. But what does the Bible say about how to respond to that thing instead of just react? Well, another one of our favorite passages around here at Evergreen, Philippians chapter four, it's don't be anxious about anything. But in every situation... Notice the word situation. So you have a situation. In every situation, here's the point. This is comprehensive for life. This week, you'll do this a thousand times. In every situation where there is a production of anxiety, anxiety is a good and a helpful thing. What you learn from it is what thinks the outcome good or bad. 
But in anxiety, in this situation, do something. Here it is. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds, emotion centers, thought centers, in Christ Jesus. Next verse, it continues. So finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Do it. And the God of peace will be with you. We talked about this at Evergreen about a year ago. I did a message on it. Uh, some of you are thinking about the poster that's out in the lobby. There's a picture of it. Would you say those four words with me? Pray, thank, think, do. Here it is. So we learned some things about studies about the progression of emotion regulation. And I'm going to ask you to think back with me about this passage as we do it. You know, good science simply confirms what the Bible has already told us. And here we go with some good science. We emotionally move through four stages. We start with a situation. I'm walking down the road. Something like a snake is in front of me. We end up reacting to that as the limbic system is fired. Secondly, we can choose to give some attention to that. I should probably look more closely. And if I look more closely at this thing in the road, I might be able to make an appraisal because now the frontal cortex is engaged and my appraisal is, oh, it's just a stick or it's just a garter snake, which for some of you wouldn't make any difference at all. <laughs> yeah. For some of you, it would take, it's a rattlesnake to continue to let you know that this anxiety is a very helpful thing that you can respond to. And then fourth, we come to the place of our response. So we initially, we react, the situation, we become aware with attention, we assess with appraisal, and then we can respond. Doc and Carol, Ann and I, all in our early 20s were in Eugene, and a part of Eugene Faith Center and one of our common mentors, Noel Campbell, would often say to us, don't react, respond. This is what he was saying. Don't react, respond. Self-control is the ability to move from situation to response in a helpful and righteous way. Well, we want to make that move. And we notice that actually the passage from Philippians that we just referred to has interventions at each one of these stages on the next slide. It first of all says, in a situation that has evoked anxiety for you, pray. That's your first response. Oh, I think there's a snake. First response, pray. Pray. And then Give some attention to what's going on here. And after he uses the prayer words, he says, now I want you to begin to thank. As we move into this faith, we pray, we see God's intervention, we see his engagement, we begin to thank him for how he's acting. We express faith with gratitude. And 
but he's not done there. We pray, thank, and, and then we need to think about some different things. We need in this appraisal assessment process to actually give our brain some stuff to think about. Otherwise, it'll just snap right back to anxiety because our physical system takes about 20 minutes for those hormones of stress to get worked through the system. If you don't give your brain something to think about for about 20 minutes, you'll go right back to the same anxiety thoughts that you had before. Now, some of you are long prayers, and if it takes you 20 minutes to pray and thank, you're already there. Some of us are a little shorter than that, and so he gives us eight specific things to think about. Think about these kinds of things now as you're making your assessment. Think about things that are true, things that are good, things that are pure, things that are lovely things that are excellent, things that are praiseworthy. And as we do that, then we come to the place that he says, okay, now it's time to do something, time to respond, time to act out on it. I want to tell you, uh, just a little, share a little story from about two weeks ago, uh, one of my pastor friends sent me a text and uh, he was ticked. His word was angry. And uh, bummer for him, he was stuck in the situation for three days literally could not get out of his situation for three days. And I responded with this text. I said, you know, this is an unexpected opportunity for you. An opportunity to be, I mentioned four things. Number one, self-aware. Where is this anger coming from? What is it telling you? Talk to God about that. Number two, what is being challenged, threatened, violated, and made vulnerable? Be grateful for this insight. Number three, what values, what of your values are being revealed and violated? Focus on those good values. And number four, your emotions are talking to you about truth. So what should you do? Now, you notice what I did, right, in that text? Pray, thank, think, do. The next day, he fired back, and he said, thanks for the text. He said, uh, I didn't like what you sent. <laughs> and I did it. And, of course, it's been really helpful. It's how God designed your being to work. We read in Proverbs 29, a fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. We've read a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook a transgression. We read that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh answer stirs up anger. Jen Hatmaker, a blogger, posted this last week along with this meme. Perhaps a way out of raging anger is to sit still with it. And to see what it has to tell you. It might surprise you. You see, grief is tender and vulnerable. So it masquerades beautifully as anger. Even fooling ourselves. I get the problem. First, processing grief takes too long and anger is quick and useful and immediate. Two, grief requires a soft heart. But... It's super scary, and anger is a much safer substitute. Three, grief seems to concede power to someone else or some circumstance while anger feels wonderfully under your control. And four, 
Grief seems weak, while anger seems strong. Anger has its place, though, but unfortunately, it will rarely lead us back home to health and healing and wholeness. It just takes us further away because it's not telling the truth, or at least not the whole truth. Frankly, the world needs less angry people and more people willing to simply grieve and heal. Anyway, that may be the first step for a bunch of us, is just sitting still and quiet with anger to discover it and how it might have something else to tell us. Self-control. What have we learned today? Well, four things came to mind to me. I hope that they sound familiar to you. The first thing that we learned is that self-control produces a better life for you and for others. And God wants you to have a lot of it. The second thing is that willpower is limited and it will never be adequate to get us through the day to fulfill our best intentions. The third thing we learned is that the Holy Spirit produces as part of its fruit in your life self-control, which supplements the limited willpower you can bring to any situation to help you successfully live Christ's life and experience God's perfect will. And the fourth thing we learned is that the Bible teaches us how to respond to anxiety. As we, would you say the four words with me? Pray, thank, think, and do. So what are your next steps? Well, we start with the Bible and we always come to the discovery that we need the Holy Spirit's desperate help and, and he always leads us back to Jesus. So here we are today. Some of us need to be filled with God's Spirit. Uh, some of you have been filled before and you got leaky. We all are. And some of us have never been filled with God's Spirit. And so your starting point is the only difference. It's not the need. We all need to be filled. Your starting point today may be to say, as Carol and Doc were talking about that a man from the Czech Republic who's on this place of making a decision about Christ, maybe today is your tipping point about being a Christ follower. You might still be in the discovery phase of that, but every time we meet, there's always people who find themselves at that tipping point. You're at a point of decision today. And you're being filled with God's spirit is your starting point in a relationship with Christ that says, I confess that I have sinned. I've gone my own way. I receive your forgiveness. And as you forgive me, Holy Spirit, come and live inside of me and fill me up with the person and power of Jesus. Some of you have walked with Jesus for a long time, but you've been leaky. It's shown up on the self-control quotient this last week. And you're saying with all of the rest of us, and today, Lord, I ask for the fresh fullness of your spirit. Some of you today need to make a decision about your mind. You love Jesus, but you're carrying around a culture-conditioned mind because you haven't given attention to allowing him to do some rewiring. And today you discovered some ways that you can partner with him in that. And some of you today need to give God your body. You've thought about stuff, you've prayed about stuff, you've become convinced about stuff, and you haven't done the stuff yet. And the fourth after pray, thank, and think is what? It's due. So as you stand, and as the band leads us in this song, would you make your next best response to Jesus? Lord, we open up to you and receive your forgiveness. We invite the gift and the person of the Holy Spirit 
We ask for your baptism and your empowerment and your overflowing fullness. We give you our minds to be restored and renewed. And Lord, we give you our bodies to act out in right ways this week for your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Say with me. Let's stand together and sing.